What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Take the baseline out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another long-awaited edition of the Hardwood Knox podcast. I am Dan Favalli, and I am coming at you, as always, with Andy Bailey. How are we doing today, Andy, on this Friday Mere hours after the Houston Rockets were eliminated by the San Antonio Spurs, who were playing without locker room on-court cancer, Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> wow, what an introduction, especially for Kawhi. I, I'm doing good. Um, that was insane. I, I was out of town for the first half of that game, and I was I kind of checking the score on my way home. Turned on the TV, and I think it was... The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Close to 30 by the time I turned it on. And it just blew me away. It's I don't I can't imagine... Any other organization, maybe in any sport that can do like that's not surprising to see that for them to have their best player out. Um, I I understand that they're probably better without Tony Parker, but to have their starting point guard out too, and then to just put it on the Rockets in Houston the way they did, it was just it was like the most Spursian thing possible happened last night. There's not even the Patriots. Like, you know, like they won those, would they go three and one without Brady this year? Yeah. And they were like pretty good that one year that they had, uh, was it Matt Castle? Yeah. And I guess at this point we could throw the Warriors in there, but the caveat is like, you could, you know, you could, like if you pulled Clay Thompson, 
Draymond Green and Kevin Durant from the lineup. They're still left with Stephen Curry, and the Spurs don't have those types of safety nets. LaMarcus Aldridge can be a star, and he was fantastic. He was absolutely fantastic uh, in Game 6. But you you remove Kawhi Leonard for so much of the postseason, he's been there everything on offense. And to see the, the biggest thing, the turning point in that series for me, was that they were able to keep Jonathan Simmons on the floor, and he wasn't hurting them offensively. He all of a sudden started making shots again. Yeah. He missed a few threes last night, but I think he was 8 of 12 from the field, and, and he was dishing out assists. And now they're probably going to lose him in restricted free agency. Yeah, I remember earlier in the playoffs, I kind of thought, and I might have even like tweeted about it, that San Antonio just seemed so dependent on Kawhi. And I like there wasn't a ton of talent that – leaped off the roster uh, beyond him. And I just, I, I didn't think they were very dangerous for that reason. I thought they were, they had kind of become a one-man show. And <laughs> last night was about as, um, it was about as vivid a reminder of what this organization and what this system is about. Like, I, I was saying last night that maybe Pop's biggest strength as a coach is that he can have, 15 guys on a roster engaged and ready to run the system and play their heart out. Like if they get on the floor for two or three minutes, um, it's incredible the way that he's cultivated depth in this team over the last few years. And they're such big shape shifters now Uh, at the beginning of the playoffs, excuse me, uh, Jonathan Simmons's demeanor towards the end of the season and the playoffs to me, didn't look great. He wasn't, really in the rotation. They were going to Kyle Anderson before him. And, like, you're just wrong if, if you think that there's there's something there. Maybe he was pissed that he wasn't playing and it's a contract year. But he just comes in and, like, he hasn't deviated from the team concept and trying to get his own. He still plays within the constructs of the Spurs. And th- these other guys, David Lee goes from being a prominent part of the rotation to playing eight minutes in a blowout. Dwayne Dedman who I honestly thought was going to be the second most important defensive player for them in the playoffs because of his ability to switch pick and rolls more than more than Aldridge, Lee, or or Gasol. He's only playing four minutes in a blowout and and was pulled from the starting lineup just before the postseason or at the beginning of the postseason. It's just amazing that they're able to make these changes and everyone staying engaged. So it's not like this is a set in stone pecking order that Pop. Uh, is so rigid he won't tweak he he messes with it he butchers with it he manipulates it and all these guys are just ready it's 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 phenomenal to me and it's mind-boggling as well this would be interesting to this is something I, i'm probably going to look up when we're done recording just because i'm maybe i, I love looking stuff up like this now before we record. <laughs> but i'm looking at their roster on basketball reference they have 10 guys with a box plus minus over one and I, I can't imagine there's another team in the league that has more than that. No. And all these guys, among that 10, the one with the fewest minutes is Davis Bertans, who's still at 808 minutes. How many guys did they have play over 800 minutes? Was it 10? They had 12 guys over 800 minutes. There, that has to be the most in the league, too. Yeah, that's crazy. That's just and absolutely that's, nuts. Yep. Do you give them a it, chance against the Warriors, though? I, <laughs> I don't. I, some my my little brother texted me last night. And he's like, "What are the uh, what are the Spurs' chances?" I think he just really wants an upset. And I said, "Warriors in four. Um, You're probably I, 
if it goes six, I would be mildly surprised. <laughs> like you think it's going to be Warriors in five? That's that's what I, I want. My heart and the person who is one, a fan of chaos, and two, a fan of competitive series, I just want to say seven because the Spurs have, on occasion, on multiple occasions, played the Warriors so well. But over the course of a seven-game series, when you're just playing each other one right after the other, when the Warriors are engaged, I don't, I don't think this play style stands up to theirs. And I also don't think, as the Spurs showed against the Rockets, and I guess it's okay because they ended up winning, but they weren't necessarily willing to adjust their lineup combinations and play style. They made a ton of defensive adjustments, and the fact that they were doing that from game to game and when one thing wasn't working, that's that was phenomenal. But it wasn't like they committed to playing Kawhi at the four and to play a little bit faster and to launch more threes. And I think to some extent, and that's the problem with the Jazz and the Spurs, is to some extent you have to be able to play a little bit of the Warriors' style. It's fine to displace them from their comfort zone, but if you fall behind by a lot, you need to be able to shoot a lot of threes uh, to come back. And I think the Jazz are more willing to do that than the Spurs. But you also need to play a little bit faster and get yourself some extra possessions if you are playing from behind. And I don't know that the Spurs are willing to do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the the chaos fan in me actually kind of wants San Antonio to win this series because I think it would make Golden State's offseason slightly more interesting. I I also want to see... Imagine uh, that. Would yeah, be that, that rematch is cool. I, I, I do want to see the Warriors Cavs rematch, too. At this point, um, not having a rooting interest is is kind of fun. I can just sit back and relax. welcome to the last decade of being a Knicks fan. <laughs> what I was also going to say is um, Utah, I think, did try to match Golden State style a little bit in game three, which was actually the game that they were most competitive in until about maybe two or three minutes into the fourth quarter when Golden State just put their foot on the gas and ran away with it. Um, So I agree with you that, like, for the last two or three years, I've thought the best way to try to beat them is to play polar opposite and to uh, grind the game to a halt, Mm -hmm. uh, muck it up a little bit. And I think Utah did a good job of that in a couple of regular season games. But I agree with what you're saying now, and Jeff Van Gundy made a point like this on Zach Lowe's podcast recently too like you have to find a way to get more shots if you're playing against golden state and one way is to maybe play a little faster like you said one of the ways that van gundy mentioned was you you hit the offensive boards really hard and while that's like that's kind of scary against the warriors because then maybe you open yourself up to that transition attack right but there you have to it, it it's like, what do you have to lose against the Warriors? You have to try stuff um, over the course of the series because if you just go in you know, and, and, and try to play them the way you have traditionally for the last couple of years, um, it's probably not going to work. Now, having said that, <laughs> the, the Spurs did beat the Warriors by over 20 points twice this season. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe they have more of a chance than I'm giving them, but uh, to me it just seems like, Golden State's talent is going to overwhelm everybody. Do you think that Greg Popovich has just had schemes, defensive designs and stuff just up his sleeve all year planning for this potential matchup and just hasn't broken it out that we've seen? And I thought if there was, we would have seen some of it in that Rocket series. But the Spurs are just so, they're so good that they're mysterious that I can't imagine them not 
having maybe some lineup combinations or maybe they're going to do something with the Warriors' off-ball movement that we're not going to see coming and have been planning for this and just haven't unleashed it yet because they're trying to win the element of surprise. It's such a, it seems like such a basic and stupid thing to say, but if you're them, no, I, I think that wouldn't surprise me. And like, um, it also wouldn't surprise me if they didn't use it against the Rockets. I, I think last night holding Kawhi Leonard out was a pretty good indication that they weren't that worried about the Rockets. So, having maybe a few more tricks up their sleeves for the Warriors is something that wouldn't surprise me at all. Sorry, I cut you off. Keep going. No, no, no. That's, you finished what I was going to say, so um, I'm totally down with that. The other thing about them defensively is uh, you mentioned maybe they have something for the Warriors' off-ball movement, and I think maybe more than any other team in the league, the Spurs are, are prepared to handle that. For the last two or three years, when you watch the Spurs play defense, um, it's really it's almost hard to believe the way that they defend off the ball. It's like they know the cuts are happening and they know the screens are happening before the offensive player does, and they get themselves um, they get themselves in the right position, like right on the catch every single time. It's crazy to me. Uh, they they maybe don't jump passing lanes as much as some other teams do, but I think that's because they play sort of a safer brand of defense where they don't want to foul. They don't want to leave themselves exposed to back cuts and stuff like that. Like they know what the play is and they just put themselves in the perfect position um, to defend it. It's, it's crazy the way that they can anticipate an opposing team's actions. I think the, the, the biggest issue for them, and this is probably what's been most impressive about them as well. So it's, it's weird. It's a weird juxtaposition. I don't know how you get by with your dual big lineups against the Warriors. I just don't I don't yeah, see that'd it. Yeah, be interesting. So many of your bigs, most of them, Gasol, Aldridge, Lee, they're most valuable stationary rim protectors. Deadman's really the only one who can switch and and he kind of trailed off toward the end of the season. The lineup I would like to see and I'm making adjustments for the Spurs before they've before we've seen that they needed to make them is Devontae Murray at this point, with Jonathan Simmons, Danny Green, Kawhi Leonard, and Dwayne Dedman. I would just like, it seems like the switching potential in that lineup is fantastic. They should be able to carve out uh, enough spacing. I know Murray isn't That's the probably their most athletic shooter. five, too. Yeah, and I would just like to see. I mean, you could replace Murray with Ginobili because you have Leonard and Green who will defend point guards, and that might work as well. But that, that would be something I'm interested in seeing. I just, again... Are the Spurs so married to their style that they're not going to displace themselves from it and the goal is to make the Warriors stage these adjustments? I, I honestly don't know because I would have thought... I do want to see some Kawhi at the four, too, just with any other combination. They just Those lineups just were non-existent like during the regular yeah. season. When I and was maybe, doing... that's, maybe that's one of the things that Pop is sort of saving, like you mentioned. Maybe. Uh, and Kawhi's ankle is going to be huge in this one. I, I think it says yeah. that he's going to play in game one on Sunday which is good, and, and it seems like they were just holding him out as a precaution, but you need him to, I mean, like, it's an... He's got to be full strength, Right, yeah. this isn't a rocket situation where, yes, you have Danny Green and Jonathan Simmons, both of whom have spent time on James Harden, so, like, those are luxuries, but, you know, let's let's fill that out. Okay, you put Danny Green on Steph, uh, you put Jonathan Simmons on, I don't think you could put him on Durant because of the size difference, but you put him on on Clay, like, there's still Draymond and KD that 
that quiet yeah. one of them is someone that, probably is going to have. That's the, the crazy thing about the Warriors is you can have like, you can have such a good defense defense with so many solid individual defenders, and you're almost always going to be one matchup short. Still, it's so the the way the assignments will shake out is Kawhi gets KD right, and Danny Green will get Steph. Or do you think Simmons will get Steph, and then they'll try and use like Danny Green on Draymond? Yeah, that's the. I I would guess they probably start with that first one with Danny Green on Curry, but but yeah, I think Draymond is the matchup that like defines the series. foils everything. Yeah. yeah, who guards him, and that's why I think some maybe Kawhi power forward stuff might be interesting. But then who guards Durant? Like Green, I, I, <laughs> with so the, all the stuff that you shift around, it's like the the Warriors always have one spot that they can exploit at least. I guess what the Spurs could do is if you put Kawhi on Draymond and then you put Danny Green on KD, you could put Jonathan Simmons on Stephen Curry. Again, he proved he could at least hang with James Harden for points. I know Harden had a cold and was awful in Game 6. And then, as you were just talking about with the way San Antonio's off-ball defense is, I'm not saying he would hide someone on Clay, but like Clay's probably the matchup you're least worried about because he is in constant motion and that might be the defensive assignment you're best prepared for. Yeah, and he hasn't, Clay hasn't been great in the playoffs. Maybe that just means he's bound to break out at any yeah. moment. But um, yeah, I think they maybe have one or two guys that are willing to just sort of chase Clay around off the ball, and you focus the the really good on ball guys on other players. But it, like I've said a couple times now, like no matter how you reconfigure it. Um, something is always going to be kind of scary to look at. <laughs> yeah, that I, the starting lineup matchups are – it's going to be incredible. If the Spurs keep it the same, you're going to end up with LaMarcus Aldridge on Draymond Green, which just can't happen. Yeah, that's that's just asking for disaster. And when, when they go small, you, you can't have Pau Gasol on Draymond Green or David Lee on Draymond yeah. Green. Yeah, it's – and I uh, – I mean, I kind of thought the, the Warriors would go 12-0 and up to the finals anyway. Um, but I, after seeing the way they dismantled Utah, I, I thought they would sweep Utah. I didn't think it would be that, um, lopsided. That might have been the most competitive second round series though, even though it was a sweep. I mean, for stretches, there was, to me, that series was like, Utah was competitive for like two and a half quarters of every game, but Golden State, I mean... (laughs) I think in their in the back of their minds, they play certain teams, and they know they only have to like turn it on for about a quarter, and they're fine. It's not. It seems they beat teams with these unreal two to four minute stretches that happen. That's between what it is. One and, and three they, times. Sometimes a game. it's like yeah, I was gonna say. Sometimes it's spread out over a game. Sometimes it's like a six minute stretch, and that's all it takes, and the rest is just cruise control. Um, but that's another crazy thing about this Warriors team. They they really don't have to put together like 48 minutes of great Warriors basketball to win and to win easily. Like they can win a game easily by playing 25 minutes of Warriors basketball. Right. It's it's insane. Do you so what would be your pick for this series? I'm almost inclined to say Warriors in 6 just because I could so envision the Warriors losing Game one, like that's the one-off yeah, just situation. Out flat a little bit, right? Like it's like the season opener when the Spurs just destroyed them. I, I could see it being a little bit like that, and then I would expect San Antonio to win at least one of its own games, like at home. 
I was thinking, like I, I think I said earlier, I was thinking Warriors and four, and that's what I've told a couple people. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch right now. You've talked me into Warriors and five. <laughs> that's I'm I'm still between five and six. I would love for this to go seven, and um, I want to see Warriors Cavs, but I almost would rather see Spurs Cavs because I think it would be more competitive. I honestly. The Cavs need another piece before I'd be confident that they can rival the Warriors. They, they just, and I know it's impossible for them to get that other piece, but they need, they need something like a, it, like another piece before. Like the Warriors had Kevin Durant. The, the Cavaliers almost lost to the Warriors in five games last year, and then the Warriors got Kevin Durant. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. That was one thing I thought right after the Utah series was. Like, this was arguably already the best team maybe ever assembled. And then they added a guy who's arguably the best scorer ever. <laughs> it just... They have... Go ahead. I, I, don't, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but, like, Kevin Durant and Jeff Van Gundy brought this up on the low post. He's the second best small forward in NBA history, right? It goes LeBron, then him. Yeah, I, I that that was interesting to hear that, too. I Maybe you still say Larry Bird, but... Um, but yeah, I think Kevin Durant has a very strong argument, yeah, I mean, and I stand by the fact that he's probably the best, like, pure scorer ever, too. No, there's, there's, his marriage between efficiency, volume, and the types of shots he's taking. I think LeBron, when you look at his efficiency and volume, like that's historic, and we've probably seen um, these big guys who take a ton of looks, and and their percentages are so high. But you look at the shots Kevin Durant takes. You know, the three-pointers or those tough twos. And his efficiency is always so high. His true shooting percentage is always so high. He's a perpetual 50-40-90 guy. It's, I, he has to and be. And you add to all that just the fact that he's seven feet tall. Like He's listed at 6'9", okay? I don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> he is one. I mean, he is. I, I used to always love seeing him stand next to Serge Ibaka when they were both on the Thunder. And from several angles, he would look taller. Um, there was that picture floating around with Team USA where he looked taller than DeMarcus Cousins. Yeah, I remember that too. Just to sort of uh, punctuate this discussion you just started about his efficiency, <laughs> this is this is insane. You're leaving us? He's been in the league. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had to count something. <laughs> He's been in the league 10 seasons, and... Uh, Seven of them have been a true shooting percentage over 600. Oh my God. This, this season, his true shooting percentage was 6.651. <laughs> he hasn't had a true shooting percentage under 600 since 2010-11. That's just nuts. So, this, so <laughs> from 2011-12 till now, his true shooting percentage is 635. I, that's just mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they added that to a team that won seventy three games. They have they have two of the most efficient scorers or volume Ever. shooters in NBA history on yeah. their team. They might be the two most efficient volume shooters in NBA history. Like, that, that was another thing. Stephen Curry had. Um, I am very confident the greatest offensive season of all time last year. Yeah, without question. I couldn't believe that people didn't think otherwise. Yeah. So, okay, this, that's another thing you add Kevin Durant to. It's just, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. And, and uh, all this gets back to our original point that it's just, it's really hard to see anyone beating them. But I have said, 
in the past, I, I think maybe even on this podcast, that I'm done discounting LeBron. Like, as good as that all is, um, statistically, like, mind-blowing the Warriors are, I still would not be shocked to see LeBron pull off another miracle. I just... It's fun, and it's like you just said. Not having a rooting interest is just so... It's it's awesome because, yeah, you'd probably prefer to have a rooting interest in games that matter this much, but you can look at this, and there you can appreciate almost every single potential matchup. Like, the, no one's beating, and we should probably get to this now, but no one's beating the Cavaliers. In no, the, yeah, that's over. <laughs> and so we're going to get Spurs-Cavs or Spurs-Warriors, and, and it's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, either one of those is awesome. Um, but I, I'm not of, one of these people that thinks, like, inevitability of Warriors-Cavs is a bad thing either. It, it, I think that was great for the league in the 80s when it was Lakers-Celtics, and I think it's, I think it's good for the league now, too. The only way it sucks to me, well, first of all, we need this matchup. Because you need, even if it's a blowout on the Warriors or the Cavs' part, you need this because of what happened the past two years. The yeah, you Warriors won the and the Cavs countered. That you need like this best of three set. So it might almost be a disappointment if we don't see it. But you can imagine if it doesn't happen this year, it'll happen again uh, because you don't necessarily see the competitive landscape shifting so much that neither of these teams would fail to reach the finals uh, in the next two years or something. But it only becomes boring if let's say the Warriors blow them out this year and then let's say it happens again and they blow them out again if it becomes clear that the Cavaliers just aren't up to snuff with the Warriors uh, that's yeah, that's when it would become little, yeah I would uh, agree with that who do you think Cleveland's not losing but who do you think is the bigger threat to them in the Eastern Conference Finals the Wizards or the Celtics who are playing game six tonight um, gosh, this series is like, <laughs> this series is hard for me to peg because every time I think it's kind of decided one way, there's a blowout the other way. Like two or three days ago, I thought the Wizards will give the Cavs a much more competitive series and then they get blasted by 20 or 30 points or whatever it was. Um, I think my gut still says Washington is a tougher matchup. For Cleveland, I just I think they have a little bit more talent at the top than the Celtics. Um, You're such an Al Horford hater. Well, that name actually did pop into my mind like right before you said that. (laughs) Um, He's been unreal in the postseason. Uh, Isaiah Thomas is obviously great offensive player, Um, but to me, Boston is more of like a they're they're like a one through ten solid depth type of team where I think Washington has a little bit more firepower at the top. So maybe it's sort of a philosophical question, like what what kind of team do you think is better between those two? And I think in a playoff series, it's the Washington model. Um, when rotations are usually shortened up and you can play your best guys over 40 minutes a game. Um, so that's <laughs> without even predicting whether or not Washington will escape – this series, I still somehow think that they might be a little bit tougher for Cleveland. So as, as on this podcast and in many of the things I've written, I'm wrong all the time. I am honestly (laughs) proud of myself for sticking with the Celtics all year as the Cavaliers biggest threat. A lot of people thought they were going to lose to the Celtics even before Rondo got injured. I thought they were going to come back again. This isn't, I'm touting myself, but I'm wrong so much that me being so bullish on the Celtics is making me happy. 
I don't <laughs> see how the Wizards hold up to the Cavaliers. It, but it, how does Boston hold well, up to the Cavaliers? So the Wizards thing with me is if you don't have three or four of your starters playing peak basketball, you have no chance of winning because you can't turn to anyone on the bench. Kelly Oubre Jr., it's pretty cool that he can defend point guards, but his offense is iffy. Whenever they sub yeah. out Markeith Morris for Bojan Bogdanovic, the offense is crazy, but the defense is worse than the offense is crazy. Uh, you don't really have good reserve bigs right now. You don't know what you're going to get from Jan Mahimi. Brandon Jennings shouldn't be running points for a playoff team. And so, if and Bradley Beal has not been that great during the postseason. He's For his career, he's been phenomenal in the playoffs, but he's been so hot and cold this year, and that just puts so much responsibility on John Wall. I want a team, if you're going to go up against the Cavaliers and you have to pull off the upset, I want a team that can beat them in so many different ways. And I I think we really saw the potential of the Celtics in that Game 5 win because Isaiah Thomas didn't even do much. The, The thing he did most was being Isaiah Thomas in the sense that the mere threat of him really just warped some of Washington's defensive sets and it created opportunities for others. When he kicks out, it's almost either always to an open shooter or the guy who's catching the pass can find a third person who's wide open because no one can rotate fast enough and he instills such fear on those collapses. But Al Horford, to me, has he's the Celtics' best two-way player during the postseason. I would listen to arguments that he's been better than Isaiah Thomas for the playoffs. I think he... I, I would say he probably has been. But right, keep and going. His, the perception of him is warped because, and that's the second time I used warped in three seconds, but the optics aren't good because of those quote-unquote bad two games he had against Robin Lopez. I was writing about this a week ago or something. During that Bull series, Al Horford averaged 11.8 points, 4.5 assists, shot 70% overall, and 75% from the three-point line when Robin Lopez was on the floor. So Horford didn't get owned by Robin Lopez. Yeah, and th- There's just this misconception around him, and he can defend either Kevin Love or Tristan Thompson. You can keep him on the floor against team small ball lineups, and if he's your center, you have a five-out lineup without necessarily sacrificing rim protection. He's not the best rim protector, but it's different than if the Cavs have Tristan Thompson at the five. His best floor spacing ability comes from his screens. Horford sets screens. He'll, he'll catch you off guard with his passes, and he shoots threes. And the fact that the Celtics are so much deeper, the fact that they can throw so many defense, different defensive looks at LeBron, no, they're not going to slow him, but I could see a series in which LeBron is the only Cavalier that's having a good best-of-seven set because they have the personnel, it seems, to neutralize Kevin Love. They can make life hell on Kyrie Irving. I think on in most lineups that the Cavs will run out, there will be someone that Isaiah Thomas can be stashed on. Uh, whether it's Shumpert uh, or J.R. Smith or Kyle Korver or whomever that is just a glorified spot-up shooter at this point, you can probably get away with having him on the floor. And if you can't, Marcus Smart can defend power forwards. Is a point guard who defends power forwards, and it's not a mismatch. It's, I saw someone talking about this on Twitter the other night, and I remember thinking about this, and I, I might have written about it once. He defends like up three positions, two or three positions, and it's yeah, never it's pretty a mismatch. Crazy. So I just look at that depth and then how vulnerable Washington is when things don't go according to plan. They just don't have the personnel to adjust. And I, I kind of agree that they're more top-heavy, which I guess could be argued is better. John Wall is the best player 
in the Boston-Washington series, like overall, just looking in the scheme of the NBA hierarchy. But against the Cavaliers, I'm going to value depth and versatility and what the Celtics do more than what the Wizards do. And, and that's my diatribe on why Boston, even though they'll probably lose in five, is the better, the bigger threat to Cleveland. I'm going to throw some Horford stats out. I'm going to catch him. I'm going to motorboat him. <laughs> I was looking this up as you were talking. Um, his playoff box plus minus is 8.2. And then just for, uh, just for a reference point, Isaiah Thomas's is 1.3. Um, what's, Al what's Isaiah's playoff? breakdown offensive box plus minus? So Isaiah's offensive is 3.5, which oh, is okay. way lower than it was in the regular season. And it's minus 2.2 defensive, which is probably actually better than it was in the regular season. Um, <clears throat> but keep uh, continuing with Horford, 24.8 PER. This is the one that's really crazy. Actually, there's a couple that are crazy. His true shooting percentage in the playoffs is 732 <laughs> in 11 games. That's insane. His assist percentage leads the Celtics 29.6. Um, his just basic numbers, 15.8 points, 7.7 rebounds, 6.1 assists, 64% from the field, 57% from three. <laughs> He's been unbelievable. It's it's absolute and if if there was any questions about that contract being worth it, they've I, I would hope they've been answered by now. I I tweeted this during the Bulls series and then I retweeted it again the other night. So I retweeted myself because I'm vain. I, I said, Imagine ever thinking that the Celtics shouldn't have paid Al Horford. The argument is just it's so flimsy. It's it's honestly and I try to respect people that at least sometimes I feel like they're they're trying to have these rational discussions, but that opinion is such crap. Like it's just it's lazy, it's wrong. The market for Al Horford was a max contract, and this isn't a situation where you can say, "Well, there was so much money, Alan Crabb got so much of it, Chandler Parsons got a max deal." Okay, if Al Horford entered the market this summer, he would still get a max contract. Alan Crabb yep. wouldn't get as much money. Chandler Parsons wouldn't get a max contract. Al Horford is fantastic. And people who don't realize it because he's not averaging 20 points a game. I was just going to say it comes down to points. I, there's, I think there's still a huge uh, contingent of NBA fans that just analyze a player based on how much he scores. They're idiots. It's, and there's honestly, obviously so much more that goes. <laughs> there's so much more that goes into basketball. Yeah. Imagine having a center who can average six assists a game. Who? Think about all the different possibilities that right. can open and that, up for that's you. the thing. Which. Name a big man in the league right now who can impact the game in more ways than him. Yeah, that's that's tough to come up with. <laughs> Is it maybe like maybe it's Anthony Davis or Demarcus Cousins, but I don't know if Cousins has. But a neither one of them is the well. Maybe I was going to say neither one of them is the creator and passer that Horford is. Maybe Cousins, but is he the defender if, that Horford is? Like he's not going to yeah. switch the way Horford. It's just again, and there are better big men, and Anthony Davis and Demarcus Cousins are two of them, but. I, I don't know that there's a big man in the game right now who's going who can impact the a game or the outcome of a game or a series in more ways than Al Horford. Yeah, I, I think you've you're onto something there. Um, do so. Boston's up three two in that series. We we yeah. haven't talked a lot about that series specifically, but um, seems like they're probably going to win, right? Yeah, I don't know if it'll be Game Six. 
that they'll win. I could see them winning it. They're going to win this series. I picked them in seven. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them close it out in game six. Again, everything that I said about the Wizards as it pertains to the Cavs just applies to Boston. They're not going to have everyone firing on all cylinders every night. And when they don't, they can't win. Whereas Boston, think about the first four games of that series. Boston wasn't good. Like you had Isaiah Thomas exploding at points, but the Celtics objectively weren't good, and the series was still tied two-two. Yeah, but I, uh, I still think that, and I think you'd probably agree. Like, even if even if either one of those teams is firing on all cylinders, I, I still don't think they can win more than like a game or two from Cleveland. I don't think either of them will be more competitive against Cleveland this season than the Raptors were last year. Even though I think you could argue that both these teams right now are better than that Raptors squad, you just look at the way LeBron and the Cavs are playing. If, if, if that series goes to six games, I don't care how superficial the length would be. That would be like a major accomplishment for Washington yeah, or Boston. Yeah, I agree. I, I honestly think both Golden State and Cleveland should be 12-0 and by the time the finals start. It's, I... I wouldn't be surprised for Cleveland, but I honestly would be kind of shocked if the Spurs don't even get a game. And maybe I'm underestimating the Warriors, uh, but like. Well, I should say, like, I, I use the word should carefully. Like, I don't necessarily think that that is what will happen, but I think <laughs> I think it should be what I, I mean. I, I feel like the talent gap is so extreme, but I do. It, like like you said, it, it would be surprising if there wasn't at least one letdown at some point along the way. Right. So I, I totally understand that. And this kind of brings about a larger question because you're you're saying they should be 12-0 and 0 by the time they get to the NBA Finals. And you can say that whether or not people think you're right, there's an argument to be made that you are right. This isn't like an unfounded claim. What do you do if you're the rest of the league at this point? It's, we're, we're looking at a lot of teams that are entering a crossroads this summer. You have the Jazz. Yes, you can't let Gordon Hayward walk for nothing, but is, what's the incentive of going so far into the luxury tax to keep Joe Ingles and George Hill and this core intact when you know it's not going to beat the Warriors? For the Raptors, we know they're not going to bring everyone back because their payroll would soar past $150 million dollars. But what, do you pay Kyle Lowry and Max Steele? Yes, you don't want to lose him for nothing, but do you bring back most of these guys? Do you commit $130 million to a roster that isn't going to compete with the Cavaliers? Uh, the Celtics, you know, they can balance rebuilding with competing, but everyone wants them to trade for Jimmy Butler or Paul George. If they get slaughtered by the Cavaliers in the, what, in the Eastern Conference Finals, or if they don't even get to the Eastern Conference Finals, isn't there an appeal in keeping these net picks developing them and hoping that you're ready to go once Cleveland's window is closed. Like we're at this stage where, okay, fine. The Spurs, they can keep doing what they're doing because no matter what they do, they're going to churn out 50 plus victories and, and be a faux contender and, and people will talk about them. But all these other teams, what is the incentive to really go for it? I understand that there are certain squads and markets that cannot bottom out because they will lose the fan base. And I understand that you can't just blow things up. The Clippers aren't going to blow it up by their own hand. If they don't look the same next year, it's because Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, one or both, decided to leave, not because the Clippers decided not to bring them back. But how do you go all in, I, I guess is my question, when this is the landscape right now where almost 
the NBA Finals participants can be determined by two questions. Are you a fan of the Warriors? No. Oh, your team's not in the NBA Finals. Do you have LeBron? <laughs> no, your team's not in the NBA Finals. So I, to me, it comes down to how, how does a team define success in this era? I feel like I, this I think is about a lot to get of... profound. I'm excited. <laughs> That's probably... I just went about as deep as this is going to go, so <laughs> sorry to let you down. Um, does your fan base or does your organization, is winning a title the only thing that you would consider success? And I think a lot of fans are that way. Um, every season that's that doesn't end with a championship is a failure, and you want to think of ways to make your team a real championship contender over the summer. Um, but I, I think there's another way to look at it. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe success is a 50-win team that can get to the second round of the playoffs and hope for an injury. Um, I mean, a 50-win team, generally you have pretty good attendance. Uh, you get the, the the gate receipts for at least a round of the playoffs. Right. Um, I mean, there's economic success to be found there. Um, there's also economic risks, which you laid out, having <laughs> going deep into the luxury tax for a team that that maybe doesn't get past more than one or two rounds uh, in the playoffs. So it's, it's an interesting trade-off, but I think, I think to, to say that the only thing that you would consider actual success winning a title, especially in this era where the Warriors and the Cavs do exist, um, is a little short-sighted. So I, I, I think if everybody was sort of on that bandwagon and everybody was trying to bottom out and rebuild and, uh, have a good team by the time um, the Warriors and the Cavs windows are closed, then it just it that makes it even easier for the Warriors and the Cavs to continue to playing continue to play each other year after year after year. So I think we will have teams, and I think we will need teams that are still going to try, uh, hopeless as it may seem, to put together teams that can beat these these squads. Um, I think Boston is an interesting one. Because, like you said, they can go either way right now. Um, uh, for them, I, I I would agree with you. I think you were leaning towards keep those assets, uh, develop those young guys, and be ready when Cleveland's title window closes. Because I think that one may be closing a little earlier than the Warriors. Um, I said this before we started recording. LeBron's durability... Um, it's just insane for him to be able to do what he's done for as long as he's done it and to still look like he's not slowing down at all. But he is in his 30s and he does have a ton of mileage on his legs. So eventually it's it has to stop at some point, I would think, unless he really is some kind of a robot. Um, for Toronto, uh, <laughs> I mean, these are tough questions for Toronto and Utah. I, I think... I think Toronto, maybe I would lean the same way with, with Boston because maybe maybe Cleveland's window closes earlier than Golden State's. Um, Utah, you just sold the fan base on a rebuild three or four years ago. Do you really want to try and sell them on that again? I, I, there's just so many things to consider in all of this. I think my general like overarching point is, though, that you can't, you cannot analyze your team or your season as success or failure based on one thing, and that's winning a title. I don't, I don't know if that long-winded explanation makes sense, but that's kind of how I'm looking at it. No, I totally agree with pretty much everything you said. And 
I would advocate for the Celtics now. I didn't want them to do anything at the trade deadline because midseason additions, to me, weren't going to help them get past the Cavaliers. You would still be tethered uh, to LeBron maybe getting injured or, or something happening to the Cavs. You could probably argue that Cleveland's window is shorter than the Warriors. And, and I don't mean probably. It just it is. LeBron James is LeBron James, but the Warriors are still going to be here probably playing close to at this level if they keep the core intact in five years. The, the yeah. Cavaliers won't. LeBron will be older. So that's the incentive if you're this, the Celtics or another team in the East to go for it. And I, I do agree that it's short-sighted to evaluate everything in the context of can we beat these two teams. At the same time, I think you get to a point where that has to be the benchmark. And I'm looking at... Or at the, least, like, factors in. Right, I, I would agree with that. It, like, if you're looking at the Jazz, the Raptors, the the Clippers, those payroll situations, I think you need to factor in, uh, can we beat these teams? And if we can't, can we continue to churn out these 50-win seasons or these faux competitive seasons and pivot if we want to? And And that might be the bigger thing, is if you sign these contracts... If the Raptors paid near max for Ibaka because maybe they know Miami's going to overpay him, and if they, you give Kyle Lowry the max, do you know that if you decide after next year or during next year that you don't want to do this anymore, that it's pointless, can you pivot and trade these guys and have that path to starting over? So uh, I think that would be easier for Utah because the guys they're going to, with the exception of George Hill, I, I, Gordon Hayward will be more tradable than Kyle Lowry, I think, but keep going. No, that's – and I'm not saying they won't be able to pivot. Uh, it'll get iffy for the Jazz with how much are they going to have to pay to keep Joe Ingles. Uh, like I uh, – objectively speaking, and I know the cap landscape is going to be a little bit different, but I, I initially thought that he was going to get like 12 or $13 million a year, but the Raptors gave Damari Carroll four years and $60 million. And I, yeah. like <laughs> Joe Ingles is objectively better. definitely better, yeah. So – that, that one not, is a little bit nerve-wracking. Right. So that if they bring him back, I'm just saying that contract could be tough to move. The George Hill contract will be tough to move, either if it's a max or close to a max, or if it's a five-year deal. It better not be a five-year deal, by the way. Uh, the Gordon Hayward, uh, out of all these players, and that includes Griffin and Paul, he'll be the easiest to move. Because even if you think that He's, Paul, at that point, will still be better, good luck trying to like cobble together the assets that matches $35 million salary. Yeah. Um, and, and Hayward is only 26 years old. Right. That's, and so that's why that's he's going to be part of that. So it's easier. I, to, it's easier for the jazz to go for it. Um, and also they have the justification of going there in a small market. They have a loyal fan base, not that jazz fans will be content, but they're not going to get sick of winning 50 games and contending for home yeah. court advantage in the first round. Toronto and Los Angeles are interesting, and, and Boston's just super interesting because they're kind of caught in the middle and they have more options than the, any other team. But the Raptors and the Clippers are at that point where you have to say, if we can't compete with these teams, we can't lose these assets for nothing, but can we sign them to deals that pigeonhole us to this fate or worse for the next four to five years? And that's just the interesting question for me. And the NBA's upper middle class is really going to have to reconcile a few things this summer. And, and there'll be multiple teams that do it. Uh, it, it. Even the Rockets, you know, their cap situation isn't bad, but they're not going to have a ton of money. You have James Harden, who's probably still young enough to headline a rebuild if he wanted to. But do you commit to this model of trying to beat the Warriors by being the Warriors? It, it's just so many things have to be evaluated when, when that is your goal and you've reached the apex of your development where you have to say this is the goal. 
can we do this? Can we beat these teams? Can we actually contend with them? Um, and again, just especially the Raptors and the Clippers, because now they're actually at a stage where they have to reinvest a lot of money in these models. So I'm, I'm just very interested to see what happens. And I'm always of the mind. This is why the blow up the Clippers takes have always been short sighted to me. I'm of the mind. You re-sign your top assets. You figure out the rest later because you can't afford to lose these guys for nothing. And Atlanta might be a, a great case here because they're not a threat to Cleveland. And they might, they lost Al Horford for nothing. That was dumb. And if Paul Millsap leaves and you didn't capitalize off his departure, how far have you set yourself back now to where you're not, you can't even be spun as, you know, fake competitive as a pretender because you've lost these assets without uh, capitalizing on their exit. So there, there's just so many interesting situations this summer. And I think as much as some people might think the Warriors Cavaliers rivalry is boring. Let's say it is the trickle down effects that this rivalry will have or this collective dominance will have on the rest of the league is just fascinating to me. Yeah, it really is. Um, what I was thinking when you were talking is if you do sink, I mean, tons of money go into the luxury tax. Let's say for the Clippers in Toronto, you, you bring everybody back. Toronto probably can at least try to trade. Valentunas, but even then they'll be in the luxury tax. Can I, I think. interject with a hot take? Go ahead. They need to trade DeMar DeRozan. Go on. Uh, <laughs> you you don't have to sell me on that. You might have to sell some Raptors fans. But um, anyway, what I was <clears throat> what I was thinking is, let's say you do recommit to the current path you're already on. Uh, you're deep in the luxury tax, and you just get waxed again next year. But now you have all these same guys on instead of expiring deals, uh, you know, three or four years left on their deal. It, uh, then I think your whole discussion about pivoting is it's kind of difficult to do. Then then you just kind of have to wait for two or three years before those contracts become tradable again. Um, I, I think there is some risk inherent to that strategy as well. Like who's gonna who's gonna trade for uh, thirty? How old is Chris Paul now? Like 32, 33? 31? Who's who's gonna give up the farm for a thirty-one-year-old point guard that has like four years oh God, and a hundred million just dollars left? Thirty-two. Forgot his birthday was on May sixth. Which is actually that's actually younger than I thought. Um, but I I don't know. Like these these contracts might be kind of hard to move in the first year or two that they're on the books. Is all I'm saying. I, I totally agree with you. Um, it's, again, it's, it's just so fascinating to me. And you know what makes it more difficult is, is the players themselves. How do you justify – you, let's use, the, again, the Clippers and the Raptors as an example because I, Utah's just a little bit different, uh, even though this is something they definitely have to worry about. If your players are willing to come back because they can't go anywhere else, that's an upgrade – why would you not bring them back? But the the yeah. example would be Chris Paul and the Spurs. I don't think people realize how many hoops San Antonio has to jump through to sign Chris Paul. And I was reading, I think this was on FanRag the other day, someone wrote uh, that one of the paths that the Spurs could explore to getting Chris Paul is waving and stretching Tony Parker, trading Danny Green, and trading LaMarcus Aldridge. No. Yeah, that's a lot. So it's just like... <laughs> And I get it. That's what the Spurs have to do, especially if uh, Paul's not willing to accept a pay cut. So from the Spurs standpoint, Lowry is probably more likely to accept less than the max just because Chris Paul uh, 
who runs the Players Association, basically, didn't he champion getting rid of the over 36 rule so that he could technically sign the deal? Yeah, he's, he's like, they're, they're calling it the Chris Paul extension already. Yeah, so why would he pass on that? But, but again, like, where is he going to go that's a better situation? I, I, you could honestly argue that the smarter play would be for him or Kyle Lowry to go to a team like Denver because then you automatically turn them into probably a five seed in the West. Yeah. But meanwhile, you have these younger guys around you who, if, if they hit, all of a sudden you're relevant into your twilight and maybe you've caught on to a team that won't have to deal with prime LeBron James or prime Stephen Curry. Like it's, those options are just so bizarre. Well, why would you leave the Clippers? Because there's, no, there's not necessarily a better situation unless Pau Gasol opts out of his contract in San Antonio and the, the path to cap space is clearer. That's not going to happen. Um, so, it, again, it's just there's so many different layers to it. But I do think that the Warriors and the Cavaliers are a part of all of it. And if you see Chris Paul, I know NBA players are inherently confident, but if you see... Chris Paul specifically go back to the Clippers. He has to do that kind of just knowing I'm not going to win a title. Yeah. I was going to say, um, it made me think of, I, I think most NBA players are really confident, but after you've been sort of beaten down by the Warriors as many times as most of these guys have at some point, reality sets in. I agree with you there. I was, I was thinking uh, when I played, I played for a Division three school, and we were we were really good for a Division three team. We had guys who had uh, been kicked out of <laughs> Division <laughs> one and Division two schools. We had guys who had offers from bigger schools. We all just kind of ended up on this tiny little school for a bunch of random reasons. Um, that school will never <laughs> approach that level of talent again. It was like a perfect confluence of events, and we played a couple of Division one teams, and. We were really confident. We, we thought we could beat these teams. Um, and I remember specifically playing Liberty one year that they went to the NCAA tournament. And there was a moment of realization, like <laughs> halfway through the game maybe, they're just bigger, faster, and more athletic at every single position. Um, and it was like we, we entered with so much confidence and it didn't take long before you realized this team is just better than us. And I think that's that has to happen with NBA players at some point, unless maybe you're Dion Waiters. Um, but there there has to be some acknowledgement at some point that we're not getting past this Warriors team um, as currently constructed, unless like something crazy happens, two injuries maybe. I don't know. I guess this would be kind of a tangent, but do you know what an interesting offshoot of this Warriors Cavaliers landscape is going to be? Is it going to force not just writers but but fans to be more nuanced about how they evaluate careers and legacies where you have to rise above the ring count or yeah, postseason I think it should because you somebody's can't... already kind of I don't know who wrote this but uh, I don't even remember what platform maybe it was Bleacher Report but there was some article about all the players that had basically been denied rings because they played in Jordan's era. And now um, the same thing is kind of happening again. There are just tons of great players who are probably never going to win a championship because they just happen to be in the NBA at the same time as, as this two-horse race that is the Warriors and the Cavs. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You can't, you can't fault people for running into Michael Jordan. You can't fault them to running into perhaps the greatest team ever 
assembled yeah. in the Warriors. You you can't fault them for running into the best player to ever play the game in LeBron James. It's just that. So that might be again. And this stuff, I think, in the context, all matters. It's not boring. You know, even if this becomes an affair where we're going to talk about two or three more Warriors Cavs finals matchups, think just think about all the trickle down effects. And if teams aren't competing. I'm interested to see how everyone else responds. But there's always yeah. going to be someone who's trying to beat the Warriors or be the next great team. So I, I want to see them try and do that. And if there are teams that are going to tear it down and rebuild and take the Sam Hankey route, I want to see that too. I just want to see what the response is. And again, it, it's going to be super interesting. I don't think it's boring by any means, but there is so, now that I've come full circle and keep saying the same thing over and over again, there's just so much here to unpack. Yeah, I totally agree, and uh, I think that's probably a good place to wrap. We'll have a lot to unpack over the course of the off season um, as the draft happens in free agency. I think we'll get a we'll obviously get a much clearer picture about how these teams are going to proceed. Um, if you're a fan of of any NBA team and you you know want to talk to us about how your team will proceed, hit us up on. Twitter, I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. Dan is at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. The show is at Hardwood Knox. As always, we would really appreciate a subscription, a like, a review, any of that stuff on uh, Apple Podcasts or Blog Talk Radio or Stitcher. Um, give us five stars, whatever, whatever you want to do. We will be back. Uh, and until then, we leave you with a shout-out to Bino. You want to finish it, Dan? Bino Udri. Shout out to Monte Murray. More, I knew you weren't going to shout out Bino. More conference finals appearances than Chris Paul. <laughs> and it's going to keep going up for DeJounte. <laughs> the iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone 10R with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $2084 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.